MSW Media. Prevail. This is the new program pro politico. Histoire, la sécurité nationale. Crimen organizado, dinero sucio, global corruption. Ta brotpo za demokratiju. I ora, a tebe? I maintenant, con ustedes, su anfitrión, I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. Thanks to HelloFresh for their continued support of this podcast. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50Prevail and use code 50Prevail for 50% off plus free shipping. We've got a great show. Catherine Brownell is here. She wrote a book called 24-7 Politics, Cable Television, and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. It's a fascinating book that covers um, periods of time that I didn't really know very much about. And uh, Cable goes back a lot farther than I thought. Um, I learned a lot from this, so I, I brought her on and just kind of peppered her with questions. Um, you'll learn a lot, too. I'm excited to bring you that conversation in a moment. I want to say a few words up top here about just the horrible terrorist attacks in Israel over the weekend. I wrote about it a little bit on Tuesday in my Substack. Um, I took kind of a narrow lens, and I just focused all of it on Putin's involvement and sort of wrote about it from that from that standpoint. I didn't really go deep. I felt like I didn't know enough about it yet to go deep. And this week, I've read a lot of really good things. I've read, I've listened, I've absorbed, taken it all in. You know, whether it's this really good stuff on Substack, really smart people writing who know a lot of things, both about the politics of it and the, um, the history of it and the, the kind of the emotions of it. You know, I, I just, I learned a lot this week from really smart people, and I want to just, Shout that out up top. Arthur Snell on his podcast, he did an emergency podcast with Jason Peck, who's also has a podcast called Disorder and, you know, who approaches it from that standpoint, like there, there are certain groups, certain people that are trying to create disorder in the world, you know, which tracks with what I wrote about Putin. And Hamas is definitely, you know, one of these groups of people that just want disorder. Noah Smith has a thing about uh, his Substack is called No Opinion. And he wrote a really good, I thought, piece about where we are, where we're headed in that region about, you know, what's the solution and talked about a three-state solution. Um, I just thought it was really interesting and laid out all the facts pretty well. So that was really good. For me, I mean, there's things that, that are simultaneously true. And I think that's what makes this complicated to talk about or write about. Um, you know, the first thing is that Bibi, Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, he's terrible. He, he's a crook. He's the Trump of Israel. He reinstalled himself in power and has been trying to basically uh, take more power and, and, you know, whittle away the democracy there by taking over the judiciary. That's why there's been these huge protests in Israel all summer. I mean, massive protests. People, um, people were on strike. It's just it's because of Bibi and his policies before that and the policies of the Likud party absolutely um, exacerbating the tensions in the region. We'll just leave it at that. Um, you know, so Bibi's terrible. Um, that's the first thing. You know, the second thing is that Gaza is, as many people have written just in these terms, an open-air prison. 
and the situation with the Palestinians there is also awful. And, you know, we sympathize with it and there has to be some better solution than what's happening now. Those two things are both true. But it's also true that what Hamas did is uh, t calling it even a terrorist attack doesn't do it justice to what this is, because this is a, um, you know, it's the purpose of this was not to advance the cause of statehood or anything like that. The purpose of this was to kill Jews. That's why they did this. And that speaks to, um, you know, a, an ideology that is poisonous and toxic. And again, using the word anti-Semitic doesn't do it justice to what they're trying to do here. There weren't just Israelis taken hostage. There weren't just Israelis who were killed. So what that means to me is that they don't care about that. They only care that they figure if you're there, you're Jewish, and therefore you have to die. And, you know, we can't ever, ever accept that, tolerate it, or not call it out for what it is, uh, which is an abomination. So um, I want to say that up front. I mean, the the mental state, the, the, the I, I don't even know what to call it, the psychopathy that you have to possess to kill children and kidnap children and terrorize, uh, it, it's just really off the charts, right? And... You know, when the defense minister of Israel, Yoel Gallant, said these people are human animals, I've seen it translated as savages, but most of the translations have it as human animals. You know, part of me, the, the emotional part of me was like, yeah, you know, this guy's right. But we can't think about it that way because that's the way that the bad guys think about it. That's the way that they think about Jews. That's why we're in this mess in a sense, right? Like we have to, we have to um, remember all of our shared humanity. Um, and as much as I understand the rage, and I do, I mean, I really do. I'm, <laughs> I, I get it. Um, you know, I grew up watching Clint Eastwood movies with my dad. You know, I know, I understand, but we have to be better than that. And um, Alad Nahare, who has a sub stack also, he does great stuff. Uh, I, he wrote a thing called This War Isn't Inevitable, and it, he's talking about 9-11, and he's basically comparing, um, you know, these these horrible attacks, the Hamas attacks, to 9-11 in the United States and the drumbeat of war after 9-11 and how everybody, you know, including me, I'm going to be honest, you know, wanted to go get the guys that did this and, and uh, take them out, you know. And how good it felt when George Bush said those things, like, we're going to find you, we're going to, wherever you hide, whatever he said, right? It's very rah-rah, and it's cathartic, and it's what we wanted. But, you know, in hindsight, it did not work out very well for us. It didn't help us, really. It didn't, you know, it, in fact, it hurt us more than, than anything. So I want to read just a little bit from what he wrote, because I think it's important. Okay, so again, this is Elad Nahare. Today, it feels almost sacrilegious to be an engaged Jew in America without supporting the war in Gaza. There are many people who are deeply invested in getting us to feel that the war is itself synonymous with Jewish pride. To speak up is likely to be labeled a traitor by many. But there are lessons in history, lessons we must hear. Not every war is just, and some are atrocities themselves. The war has hardly started, and already 900 Gazans are dead, 260 are children, and no... Whatever argument made about the density of the cities and Hamas's tactics does not change the value of those lives. 
This is a war where the goals have been laid out openly by the government itself. Quote, the focus is on damage, not on precision, end quote. Water, food, medicine, and power are being cut off from Gaza and attack on the people themselves. And although Netanyahu himself warned the devastation would be so complete that Gazans should leave, the only exit was bombed by Israel itself. 130 hostages are in the hands of Hamas. It is impossible to know what Israel's plan is, but it is clear that destroying Hamas comes before saving them. 300,000 soldiers have been called up. That's 3% of the country. If Israel does win the war, it will then need to decide what to do about the territory it has taken. Indefinite occupation, annexing, installing a puppet regime. These decisions for now will be answered by the most far-right government in Israel's history. Genocidal racists are in charge of this war. We have all seen horrors beyond imagination. If we are Jewish, we are as close to those horrors as one can imagine. That does not inherently justify the next steps. It does not mean war is inevitable or that the way this war is occurring is predetermined. It feels as if it is, and that's why it's easy to tell those who disagree that they are traitors. And in the face of the horrors we have all seen, it feels almost sacrilegious to express these concerns even if we have them. But we will not be judged based on what we feel now. We will be judged based on what we do and say now. Sadly, all of this is moving so fast that to be quiet is impossible. We cannot meet atrocities with atrocities. Not only is it immoral, it is not as practical as it is being made out to be. The core of the horror we feel now is connected to our very humanity. May we use that experience to see how much more inhumanity could come in the coming months. Um, again, that's Alad Nahare on his substack, and I think that's a beautiful idea and sentiment, and he expresses everything, I think, a lot better than I can. So it's horrible, horrible, horrible what happened, and I feel bad for everybody. I feel bad for, you know, the people that were the hostages and the, you know, everybody terrorized and families who, who lost family members and friends. And I feel bad for the people of Gaza too. You know, this is just awful. And all we can do at this point is hope for, um, you know, some sort of peaceful solution. And that uh, our, what did Lincoln say? The better angels of our nature prevail here. Um, reports are that Biden talked to Netanyahu over the weekend several times and told him, don't go too crazy there. Don't just, you know, have a big slaughter. Um, I expect that's probably true. I don't know how much he's going to listen. But for now, you know, we just pray for peace, man. I'm not really a praying kind of guy, but, you know, desperate times. Anyway, those are my thoughts. And I don't want to lead right into the <laughs> right into the interview on such a down note. So, um, you know, one more thing I have to say this week is that uh, here in the U.S., you know, all of these military promotions are being held up by Tommy Tuberville, the former football coach who is now a senator from Alabama. This one dipshit... I don't know if he's really a Kremlin asset, but he's basically carrying Putin's water here. He's single-handedly making our military uh, weaker and has been doing so for months. It's his fault. He is a vile traitor. And there is a video going around of him getting off an airplane, alighting in an airplane, you know, walking down those little steps that they push up in front of a fancy airplane. And he slips on his heel and falls right on his ass and slides down those steps and uh, probably bruises his tailbone. And it's a, I don't really usually like things like this. I don't like watching people get hurt, but 
Uh, <laughs> it really is cathartic to watch this asshole take a tumble. So uh, seek that out, you know, if you need a little levity in your day. Anyway, great conversation coming up about the history of cable television vis-a-vis politics. Catherine Kramer Brownell is an associate professor of history at Purdue University. Her first book, Showbiz Politics, Hollywood and American Political Life, explores the institutionalization of Hollywood and American politics, tracing the key personal relationships, institutions, and government policies that established the foundation for a celebrity political culture and made entertainment a central feature of American politics. Her second book, and the one we're going to discuss, again, is 24-7 Politics, Cable Television, and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News, explores the political battle over cable television from the 1960s through today, excavating how the American political process became tethered to the business interests of a corporate cable TV industry. She's also senior editor for the Made by History column, um, a Time magazine. We'll be right back with Catherine Brownell. I'd like to go chill on the Palatine Hill where Remus and Romulus stood. Spend the Ides of March by Constantine's Arch where the baths and the orgies feel good. about Rome every day Caligula's lust Caesar Augustus Nero and A to Brute Rome Rome on the brain Men think about Rome cause back then instead of living like sloths you could slave is a goths Oh, let us make Rome great again. Catherine Brownell, welcome to Prevail. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So you've written this book. It is called 24-7 Politics, Cable Television, and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. That's quite a you know, subtitle, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> I I read it last weekend. It's very, very good and interesting and not exactly where I where I thought it was going to go. Um, it's kind of this sweeping history of the whole thing, um, which I found fascinating. There's a lot in there that I didn't know or hadn't heard about or just heard sort of rumblings of, you know, way back when. So I want to get into the details on all that. But before we do, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about you. You're a, a professor at Purdue. Um, you know, what do you teach? What are your classes like? And how did you get interested in this particular topic? Well, thank you so much. It's uh, it's really a topic that grew out of my teaching. So my area of expertise as a historian is looking at the intersections of media, politics, and popular culture. And my first book looked at the role of Hollywood in politics, which I thought began Ronald Reagan's presidency. But I ultimately found in my research that it was something that happened decades earlier, changes in the media landscape and party politics that allowed for 
shifts in political culture to make someone with performative skills like Reagan a viable candidate by the 1960s and 1970s. Um, and so my the first book, I, I um, developed a class out of it about media, politics, and popular culture. And I went to write the, the lecture on cable television. And each class would look at kind of a myth of media's power and politics. And so I started to dig into this idea that Ronald Reagan um, kind of launched cable and like his deregulatory agenda is what really spurred its dramatic expansion in the 1980s. But then I found I couldn't actually answer that. And there wasn't really a history of a political history of cable television. A lot of historians reference it and say, oh, it was transformative in the 1980s, but they don't explain how it was and the origins of that and what it actually did. And so that's really where I started digging into this topic. Yeah, I it, and it's good. I, I think the same way you do. I think I always sort of blame Reagan for all the bad. And, uh, <laughs> and then when you examine all the shit Reagan did, you're like, actually, Nixon is bad, too. And then you have to go back to Nixon. And uh, before Nixon, it isn't so bad. It, 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 it's like a, you know, I, I don't know, like Alien and Aliens, you know, the different levels of, of horror movies there. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to go. Did you watch a lot of Fox News, by the way? Did you have to watch a lot of Fox News when you were writing this or no? <laughs> I, I I did watch Fox News. And to me, it, it was just so interesting. I, I watched a lot of it, especially you know, during um, the, the 2016 election, but actually during the 2020 election, when I was finishing this book and I was trying to understand the different worlds that were being created on, um, on, on cable news networks. And it, it's just a stark difference. If you go from CNN to MSNBC to Fox News, especially in 2020, during and after the election, it was real like you couldn't recognize the information that was being conveyed to viewers um and it was really it was really striking and it really cemented what i uh, and confirmed what i had found in my research uh, about these these echo chambers and how they develop and how they're designed to keep people glued in and from changing the channel yeah no the the i always thought like okay what's going to puncture the the fox news bubble something has to puncture it and then we had a plague and that didn't puncture it. So I don't know. I don't know what else, you know, can possibly, but we can, we can get into that at the end. I want to talk about kind of the history of it, not to give away the whole, the whole book. I took a lot of notes and, uh, you know, I think what I'd like to do is just go through and ask you about some of the stuff that happened. So, um, it seems, it appears that, uh, the cable TV really started with a guy named Wheeler. Um, and there was this meeting of the national cable TV association and, do you think that at that, first of all, talk a little bit about that and that time period. And do you think they really believed that the power of cable was for the for the good? Or do you think they were just out to make money and that's all it was about? I think some people believe that. Some people firmly believe that cable could benefit society. And, and there there's a lot of utopian dreams that surround new technologies. Uh, when people are frustrated with the status quo, which overwhelmingly was the case in the 1960s, uh, people were frustrated with network broadcast television. It was very exclusionary. It was very limited in terms of the programming that it would offer. Um, and people across the political spectrum were frustrated with that. And they envisioned, could a new technology solve the problem? And so cable emerged, even though cable had 
actually been around since the beginning of television, all of a sudden people reimagined it because it could offer more uh, programming. Um, and, um, and it could kind of maybe solve some of the technical issues with broadcasting. Um, but by the 1980s, um, I begin the book with this really fascinating cable television political workshop uh, that Tom Wheeler runs as the head of the National Cable Television Association. And it is just this fascinating workshop because they're all of these cable lobbyists and executives and market researchers are coming to DC. They're coming to staffers and different elected officials to say, this is what narrow casting can do for you. This is how you can get the more politically active. You don't need to think about a mass audience. Think about narrow audiences and how to activate um, a smaller audience that will be more loyal and more passionate. Um, and they, they celebrate the power of narrow casting rather than broadcasting, trying to, again, to create a broad consensus. And they're framing it as good for democracy. And I think Wheeler even ends the entire three-hour event as saying, you know, this is good for um, uh, the citizen wins in the end. But in fact, the entire thing was about making money. It was about, you know, selling cable as a tool for these politicians to use and it's not just that they wanted to tap into the hefty campaign budgets um, to get them to buy ads on cable. They wanted them to vote for the deregulation of the, the industry mm. because at this time there were rate caps. There were these franchising processes that were very, um, very complicated. And so they were pushing for deregulatory legislation at the same time. They referenced it repeatedly during the workshop that, you know, this is good for you, but you need to do something good for us too. And so it's really, that's why, I, you know, th this broader regulatory debate is so integral to cable's uh, development, the way that it does in a very specific way. That's interesting. It does. It's the same thing that the internet, I guess, has done like with Facebook with the targeted marketing and stuff like that. But I like that word narrow casting because it's funny. I was reading, I read it in the book. I'm like, okay, I know what that means, but I never thought about it as a, a sort of antonym to broadcasting until you just said it now. I never thought about that word before and what it actually means. Um, even though like I have a, uh, I have this podcast, which I don't like the word podcast, but there, here we are. And, um, I have a YouTube, a live YouTube show, which people call a podcast, but I'm like, it isn't a podcast. It's a broadcast, you know, and, mm -hmm. but is it really, I mean, it's a targeted thing. So I don't know. I feel like the, the words for these things are sort of fascinating. I'm a writer. So, you know, word choices and how they, they choose to say these things are interesting. Um, going back a ways, uh, Edward Morrow said it's an incompatible combination of showbiz advertising and news. What was he talking about there? Was that cable or just the, the push for, for, you know, where he thought news was going? So he was critical of network broadcasting. He he gives this talk where he's really lamenting the newsrooms, uh, the fact that newsrooms are not valued at, at the broadcasting networks in the late 50s. And, um, and so he's really lamenting that the news had to do better. Many programs were really, really short um, at most. They might have been 22 minutes with commercials. And he was really lamenting that, P that the network um, broadcasters were 
were spending all of their time on entertainment shows, uh, westerns or quiz shows, uh, many of them that you know were were rigged uh, yeah. to get better ratings. And so he's really lamenting what you know uh, Newton Minow would come in soon after that um, the the vast wasteland yeah. of television. And so he's pushing the the networks to do better to take their civic responsibility seriously. And then Newton Minow really hammers home that message. And as the head of the FCC, uh, network executives start to listen. And they do. you do see a massive investment in television newsrooms over the course of the 1960s. Um, and this is their way that they're starting to show that they're upholding their interest or their commitment to the public interest, which is part of the FCC regulatory structure. Yeah, it's all very complicated. And you lay it out really nicely in the book. So one of the things... Like there's CA, because I remember this from being a kid. You know, anybody listening to this who's like younger than 30 has no freaking idea what we're talking about. <laughs> there's all these little buttons and it says CATV and UHF and VHF. And I sort of dimly was aware of what the these things meant. And I thought that cable was just because the cable, you know, literal, a literal cable comes and connects it to your house or whatever. But the according to the book, there was this guy in Seattle who just to get better like regular airwaves to certain neighborhoods that that couldn't get the regular signals on the TVs, put an antenna on a mountain or something, and then literally connected a cable to it and plugged mm -hmm. it in the back of these TV sets. And that was the first cable. Like, that, that's kind of crazy to me that, you know, who thought mm -hmm. to do that and then it worked? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Talk a little bit about who that guy was, because I think that's, you know, integral to people to just take this sort of thing for granted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Ed Parsons is one of the early cable entrepreneurs, and there are there are other people, there are many of these experiments happening, and uh, he is in Oregon, uh, but then there's also these experiments happening in Pennsylvania as well, and, um, and down in Texas. But Ed Parsons has a wife who sees the, a demonstration of television happening in Chicago. And they go back to their town of Astoria or Oregon, and she wants a TV, but he realizes that even if he were to buy a TV, it would be useless because they can't actually reach the signals for uh, by, for the nearest station, which it was in Seattle. So he comes up with this idea that what if we went to the top of a hotel uh, and he brought, because he's an engineer, so he kind of brought um, these antennas to kind of catch the, the signal from the top of a hotel and then ran it through a coaxial cable wire uh, down to their apartment. And, um, and so that really is kind of the experiments that um, early cable entrepreneurs went through. They were trying to access broadcasting signals that they couldn't, people in their community could not access due to distance or terrain, um, and then run them via coaxial cable with amplifiers to kind of keep them going to to people um, uh, to their houses, to businesses, to different hotels. And so it really takes on the form. It's called community television because it's a, a service for the community that could that was on the outskirts of being able to reach television signals. And so it really emerges alongside tele like broadcast television and originally just became a way to expand the reach of broadcasting. Yeah. What does CATV stand for? Community television, community okay, antenna television. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, what? What's this? I don't know what this is. Like old TVs back then, I guess now they still have these inputs on the back that, you know, 
most people never use, but there were all, there were only a few back on the old console sets <laughs> where you could plug anything in. Yeah, well, one of the really fascinating things about my research is I did um, a lot of research at the Cable Center in Denver, Colorado, and they have this wonderful library. It's called the Barco Library, and in it, they have all different types of documents that I went through, but they also have equipment, um, older equipment, and you, uh, the archivist there who's incredible, his name's Brian Kenny, and he took me down and showed me all the old equipment so I could actually see, oh, this was the early weather channel, which was just a camera looking at different you know weather readings <laughs> and and so it was really interesting to actually see that equipment because it is really foreign to us in the 21st century yeah it probably all still works too by the way like we had like a rotary phone that we bought at a yard sale and the thing never died it just always worked you plug it in it works <laughs> you know now you buy a phone it, it's broken in a, you know in six months or whatever and it, actually you don't even buy a phone anymore because you have a cell phone um, mm -hmm. It's just one of those things. So you mentioned Newton Minow. Um, he became the the head of the FCC under uh, Kennedy um, in the early 60s, um, talking about how TV was a vast wasteland, which is, I guess, this is something that people have been saying about TV since it was invented, I suppose, in, in the mm -hmm. 20s. You know, it's just always been shit. So what, you know, it looks like um, there was this push to, uh, you know, commit to more... Um, what what's the word? Uh, public service oriented programming at that time. That by the time of Reagan, they fought back and they pressed against that. But it all goes back, I think, to these um, these laws that were written. There's one in 1927. There's one in in 1949 that kind of preceded all of this stuff. That sort of, I, I I looked at it like how we're now looking at the internet and we're looking at at laws that were not designed to regulate the internet and how they might apply to the internet. So these old laws about the, um, you know, that the public owns the airwaves, the fairness doctrine and that sort of stuff is old. And then cable TV sort of had to, um, you know, play with the elements it, with it and sort of lobby this way and that way. So talk a little bit about that, because I think it's pretty fascinating mm -hmm. how it how it evolved. Yeah, it is really interesting. And I think your your point is right on in terms of the, the regulatory system for television was developed based off of broadcasting, um, based off of using the airwaves. And cable comes in and does something very different. And it really took decades to try to figure out what to do with cable. Um, because originally, since it was just extending the reach of broadcasting, it wasn't very controversial. Um, uh, but, but it's when all of a sudden it emerged as a competitor to broadcasting that it became more controversial. Because the FCC regulations, so there's this public interest requirement, but part of it is that the, the networks are, or broadcasters are using the, the broadcast spectrum to disseminate their programming. So, you know, the, the idea behind the FCC or the FCC's idea is that the public owns that. And so there is this public interest obligation that they have. But also at the time, the FCC allowed a corporate monopoly to develop. And so you only have um, uh, the programming is overwhelmingly developed by ABC, NBC, and CBS. They have a monopoly and the FCC allows that because local broadcasters are all affiliating with one of those uh, networks and you and then disseminating their programming via their local broadcasting spectrum. And so it, the FCC allows this regulated monopoly to develop. And so they make a lot of money 
a lot of money. Um, and so, you know, there's always this, okay, we have to invest in our newsrooms because we don't want the FCC to change this very lucrative uh, regulated monopoly. And so when cable started to compete against broadcasters, perhaps bring in independent programming or even their own programming, broadcasters threw a fit and were a very, very powerful lobbying force. And so in the 1960s, there were these very strict regulations that were imposed on cable uh, so that they could not compete against broadcasting. Um, they, cable operators could not even establish a system in the top 100 television markets to compete against broadcasters. There are limits on what kind of programming that they could bring in, all of this stuff. So it was a highly regulated industry to ensure that it didn't compete against broadcasting. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because you brought up like initially um, the purpose of cable was simply to expand the reach of the broadcasters, the ABC, CBS, NBC, which obviously they would want. You know, they would want that because it just means more TVs, more consumers, higher ad revenue, all that kind of stuff, more eyeballs on the on the boob tube, uh, as it mm -hmm. were. And then, you know, there and there was a push in the industry to just stick to that because that was also lucrative. Um, it was more technical. It was more like we're going to, you know, wire up your TV to make it work better. But it was just, uh, you know, they still made a lot of money. And then it sort of split um, in in this direction of we're going to also offer uh, programming. And then they they push mm -hmm. back against it. And they're like, wait a minute, what have we done? We've created a exactly. monster kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's really controversial, even among cable operators, about what cable television was and what it could be. Um, you know, some visionaries in, and, and entrepreneurs understood that a lot of money could be made off of programming. And if they could develop their own programming uh, and maybe even charge an extra to, for pay programming or pay television, as it would, call, it would be called, uh, that they could make more money in that capacity. But as you mentioned, others were really reluctant because it did require this political battle with broadcasters. And they just, honestly, in the 1960s, the idea that cable could triumph over broadcasting was was so far-fetched. People really didn't think that they could win out in regulatory battles because broadcasters had a lot of uh, a lot of political power. A lot of friends um, in uh, um, in Washington. Um, they they and they had a mutually beneficial relationship with broadcasters because broadcasters would keep them in front of their constituents um, through the local news, perhaps and. And they didn't want, and many elected officials did not want to ruin that relationship with broadcasters. One of the interesting things too I learned is that ABC was spawned from NBC, which I just mm -hmm. I don't know what I ever I just thought these three things always existed. Like Moses came down from the mountaintop and said, "There will be ABC, NBC, and CBS." <laughs> um, so t talk a little bit about that because it's that's something I, I was like I literally never crossed my mind before where how the origins of those companies even what what they even were. Yeah, well, well, NBC had um, a very, was again, uh, very, very powerful. And the FCC came in and it had two different networks, a red and a blue network. And the FCC came in and said that they had to, to break up into two. And so then um, ABC was formed. And they believed, the FCC thought that this was competition, that having three networks uh, compete for affiliates was a, a, enough competition for the television marketplace to work and to serve consumers. And um, and again, 
ultimately people are frustrated uh they the, the demand for different types of programming um is really across like i said across the political spectrum and so even though you now have three competitors in the 1950s there's a demand for more programming that perhaps thinks about other audiences rather than just white middle-class audiences. And so that's where a lot of the push comes from. You know, you have um, women pushing for different types of programming, both entertainment and news. Uh, civil rights activists see that representation of, um, of Black performers and Black ideas on news is really central to the civil rights campaign. Conservatives are unhappy with the, the system as well. And so even though the FCC comes in to create more competition, it's still what they were producing was still very much geared towards white middle-class audiences. This is interesting because the thing about TV too is that it's very new. It's still very new. Like it, the, what Philo Farnsworth invented in what, 1926 or something like that. So, and then it takes a while to get sorted out and then suddenly it's there. So what is the timeline? When does, when does TV hit the critical mass where it usurps radio? Is that in the 50s or, and then by 1960, everybody's... Yeah, it's really, um, there's this dramatic growth that happens between 1948 and 1952. And, um, and in this, um, the FCC again plays um, a key role. They put a freeze on any new licenses. Uh, to be grant, er, granted during that time. And so those people who already had the licenses when it's growing dramatically um, are those who are affiliated with the networks, right? And so this allows this corporate structure to continue. And during that time, it dramatically grows. And so 1948, TV was kind of an afterthought for politicians. Um, they, they went overwhelmingly to, to radio. They did not make TV a priority in their campaign. You could see kind of the origins um, of you know some experiments with televising the conventions, but it's not it's, it's not a factor in political campaigns. By 1952, it is, and it is a, a, a driving factor in um, Dwight Eisenhower's campaign. He hires television advertisers to help him with his campaign, and I think that's really the year where you see it um, uh, really take over from radio in terms, of, especially when when thinking about political communication. Yeah. Hi, I'm Dwight Eisenhower. I won the Second World War. Vote for me. This is that's. The, the whole, um, <laughs> oh no, it's the I like Ike. You got the, the yeah. I like Ike song. It's catchy. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you explain the affiliate system? This is another thing that you know you hear these things like this is KX blah 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 and blah blah, and I don't really totally understand. Is it like a franchise thing, like McDonald's franchises, where places you know buy into the you know, that they're able to use the name NBC, but it's not owned by NBC. Like, how does it actually work? Structurally. So it's, it's an agree. It's a business agreement because between a local broadcaster and the national network. So we'll say CBS. So a local broadcaster, you know, forms this agreement with CBS. And what that means is that they get a certain, certain hours of programming that will come directly from CBS. As part of the agreement, they have to agree to play the uh, CBS programming during certain time slots, which means um, overwhelmingly, of course, CBS is going to take prime time, right? Like yeah. they're going to they're going to take the the times where they have the most viewers. They do local uh, broadcasters do still have the ability to come up um, with their own programs. Uh, local news uh, programs, especially, um, are a factor, but overwhelmingly, it's the national network that then kind of sets the programming schedule. And then it opens up a couple opportunities for the local broadcasters. Then, uh, so central, so 
it's very much about the, the schedule that they they um, accept. Um, and then CBS will then buy time or sell time, sell advertising time um, uh, to national advertisers. So they then can kind of control some of the advertisements that come in that they then make money off of by, you know, selling with Campbell Soup, for example. Uh, the local broadcaster can use some of those other, there are then some slots open for the local broadcaster that can then make some agreements with the local businesses to get their advertisements on TV. So it's really, they both kind of devise a schedule and then more importantly, an advertising schedule um, who, who controls the, the certain slots for advertisement that they can then sell to either national advertisers or for the local broadcaster, more local businesses. Okay, thank you, because that's that's always been, yeah. <laughs> it's always puzzled me. It is, it's, it's hard to kind of figure these things out, how they actually worked. Um, yeah. And, you know, the one person that helped me figure out a lot of how this worked was Lyndon Johnson, because he owned um, a broadcasting, or his wife owned a broadcasting station, and um, and he really used it for financial gain. That that's uh that was next on my list too because I did not know that I it like okay if you if you look at the pantheon of U.S. presidents and think which one of these guys would be good on TV let's rank them LBJ would be what you know fortieth like he's not <laughs> not in the top that's for he's sure. got the face for radio you know or whatever but but like uh no he was very active in this and his wife owned these stations and what in Austin and wherever else so talk about that a little bit like how that obviously helped him. And did he then, you know, use his, he was speaker of the house, right. For a while. I don't know if it was at that but time. Senate majority leader. Yeah. 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 Um, what, what, uh, you know, did he use his political power to push this in a certain direction? Like how, how much influence did he have on the process? Absolutely. So, you know, Lyndon Johnson is a creature of politics. Everything he does is political. And um, and his wife, you know, gets in real early, um, gets, a, gets a radio license. And then again, during that freeze, was able to get a TV license. So, uh, so they had this media empire in Texas, and it was incredibly lucrative. He was able to finagle because he's Lyndon Johnson and, you know, has is very creative and very powerful. Um, he actually affiliated with all three networks. And so there's only one, normally there are three stations in a particular uh, broadcast area. Um, uh, but there was only one station um, where he was in Austin. And, um, and he made sure of that. And again, that's part, that's an FCC decision. FCC knows that they have to get their their budgets every year from Congress, right? And so there, there's an awareness of these political relationships and these dynamics, and um, and Johnson uses that to his advantage. And so he's the only station in Austin. And um, he's able to affiliate with all three of the networks. Um, so he's making a lot of money. This is incredibly lucrative uh, for his family and the way that they they built their fortune. And, and then Cable comes in and he's savvy enough to recognize that, again, maybe if he owns the cable system, that is just going to expand his reach. Um, and so he really he gets in early on the cables to make sure that it isn't a competitor to his broadcasting stations, but something that he can uh, make even more money off of. Lone Star State TV. It's really, I had no idea, no mm -hmm. idea at all that he was in any way affiliated with that. Yeah, the cable story surprised me too. I, I was not familiar. I knew that he had this broadcasting empire, but I in Texas, but I did not know the cable story, and I thought that was so fascinating. Um, again, he was savvy enough to recognize that. Okay, let's own that too. <laughs> yeah, no, smart guy. Um, so, oh, I have a, I have a lot more questions. Uh, we have to take a quick break. We'll be right back 
with Catherine Brownell. Have you guys tried doing like takeout lately? Have you realized how expensive it is? It's really, it's just like crippling. So I have a perfect solution to the whole takeout dilemma and a way to save money and eat better food. And that's HelloFresh. Because HelloFresh makes whipping up consistently delicious chef-crafted meals easy. HelloFresh is 25% less expensive than takeout. That means less stress in your day and more money in your pocket. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50Prevail and use code 50Prevail for 50% off plus free shipping. Let me tell you, these menu items are, I mean, they're really delicious. Sometimes I get the thing and I don't know exactly what it's going to be like. Like, I didn't know what a beef flautus was going to be. And um, beef flautus supreme with pico de gallo and smoky red pepper crema. You know what it is? It's delicious. That's what it is. Easy to make, delicious. I enjoyed that one. Also really enjoyed the Szechuan pork noodle stir fry. Oh, my God. Really, really good stuff. Cannot recommend it highly enough. And, you know, it's the fall now. So with so many in-season ingredients, you'll taste all the freshness of fall in every bite of HelloFresh's chef-crafted recipes. Produce travels from the farm to your door for peak ripeness you can taste. Let me tell you, the best string beans I've ever had in my life came from this place. No joke. Unbelievable. They were so delicious. My wife was like, what did you do to these? I'm like, did I just cook them? I don't know. Salt? They were fantastic. Turn to HelloFresh Market for yummy add-ons and enjoy the season's limited-time fall flavors lineup. Feast on desserts like the apple cider cake with caramel sauce, or please a crowd with appetizers like the BBQ pulled pork nachos. And don't forget the mini pumpkin cheesecake. Perfect for a me-time treat. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50Prevail and use code 50Prevail for 50% off plus free shipping. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch you will be vaporized.
Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Okay, we're back with Catherine Brownell. Big long break that we just took. Um, so in nineteen in the sixties, it appears to me, and I think you mentioned this in the book. There's this idea of a liberal media bias, and this seems to have been born at that time in the sixties, um, during the week and a half when maybe it was true, because um, it seems to be that you know broadcast television and certainly cable has always been the provenance of of uh, conservatives. So talk a little bit about that. What what was the how how did that develop? Is it the it's it, in your book you write about how there there wasn't enough uh, pro segregation content, um, you know, in the fairness doctrine and stuff like that. So tell us a little bit about that. So this idea of a liberal media bias is so deeply rooted in the conservative movement. Uh, you have uh, figures like William Buckley Jr. in the 19 in the early 1950s uh, feel that he cannot get his ideas out uh, in the mainstream press. And, and so he launches a new institute or a new media institution with the National Review. Um, and it you know it says that this is going to be about getting conservative ideas out there. Many independent broadcasters um, on radio, Clarence Mannion is an example of one, Daniel Smoot is another example of one, that conservatives actually, you know, buy, or, you know, get a license, they don't affiliate with the national networks because they're not concerned about making money. Um, they're concerned about getting their ideas um, out to listener, listeners on radio. And, and they, I mean, these are not profitable at all. Uh, they, they bankroll them just because they see it as a political project. And so you have many independent broadcasters in the 1950s um, and early 1960s who are conservatives who believe that they're not getting a fair shake in the mainstream media, so they have to develop their own media institutions. Uh, publishing uh, where um, houses um, start to develop, and they all link to one another. And so it creates this really interesting conservative media sphere where consuming conservative media becomes part of political action activism as early as the 1960s. And, and these are the media activists that are that helped Barry Goldwater win the Republican nomination. Of course, he gets uh, in 1964. Of course, Goldwater gets smoked by Lyndon Johnson in 1964. And so then they realize that they have to be even more aggressive about selling conservative ideas. Um, and so uh, th this notion of liberal media bias justifies their development of these alternative media institutions. And it just becomes um, it, it, it intensifies with Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew and the White House, who they too buy into that idea and really popularize it. And so it really becomes the rallying cry for the, the modern conservative movement. Well, you mentioned his name. That's time. We've got to go there now. You know, <laughs> when, when I think about like the media and politics and, and the history therein, um, you think about the debate between Nixon and Kennedy, which is sort of fan probably as you write maybe a little bit overblown the importance of it but you know the, the idea that nixon just lost that election because he looked like a sweaty chump on tv and kennedy is this gleaming you know camelot guy uh i did not realize what a dick nick nixon was to the press and to broadcasters and the whole thing so um you know you write about this a lot but you know briefly talk a little bit about richard nixon's relationship to uh media in general Oh, I don't know how I could be brief about that. <laughs> 
Take as much time as you want. (laughs) (laughs) Nixon is obsessed with the media. And and it's it's because of he's aware of TV um, in 1960. And I think that's actually one of the misconceptions that um, people have about the 1960 election, that he didn't take TV seriously. Um, But he did. He just um, he thought that he wanted to present himself as this serious states person um, that, you know, really capitalized on his record as the vice president. And he was trying to criticize John Kennedy for being too glitzy, to caring too much about his appearance and therefore not being serious enough as a presidential contender. And and so, yes, the TV debates, uh, his first performance is not great, (laughs) Um, but he then he does improve his presentation in the next three debates. But it's really interesting if you you kind of look at the broader media politics of that entire campaign. So not thinking just about the debates, but his advertisements. Again, he's very serious. Um, and he went so far, this is one of my favorite um, bits of research from my first book, that he went so far to try to distance himself from Kennedy's glitzy style um, and to avoid any accusations that he was using Madison Avenue tactics um, in his advertising campaign, that he put his re-elect- or his campaign headquarters, he moved them off of Madison Avenue. Even though they had all advertisers that were working there, he put them on an obscure street, uh, Vanderbilt um, Avenue, just because he didn't want any connotations about, you know, he was using any kind of showman tricks to Mm. sell his candidacy. Well, it doesn't work. Um, He loses and he blames that media strategy. He blames losing on the TV debates, but also on the broader advertising strategy that that Kennedy was, you know, had this celebrity persona. And so he tries to recreate that. (laughs) He never really is quite successful, but he tries. He tries very hard. And because part of that is it's controlling his image, right? And so by 1968, he's obsessed with controlling his image. He uses TV producers like Roger Ailes who gets his start in the Nixon campaign in 1968 to, to make sure that he's presented in this very, uh, very marketable package. And so then when he wins in 1968 using that strategy, that is the pillar of how he thinks about power. It's about having the right message, having the right control over his image and his message. And that's why he becomes obsessed with controlling TV um, news about him, um, any any kind of press conversations about his campaign or his presidency. And he went on famously, he he's the first one that go on all the like the pop shows, like, you know, he's yes. on Soccer to Me, when he was on Laughing or whatever. <laughs> Exactly. And he, he asks it really awkwardly. It's yeah. like a socket to me. <laughs> yeah. Like he doesn't really get the joke. So I don't, I don't, not. it's not uh, it, it, much parodied and spoofed and, and, and rightly so. So, OK. And then we get to then we get to to Reagan. And, you know, Reagan, of course, is from is a creature of Hollywood. Um, Nixon is also from Southern California, but not from Hollywood, you know. Um, in the way that Vanderbilt is not Madison. Vanderbilt is a half a block <laughs> exactly. from Madison Avenue, by the way. It's right near, right. Anyway, uh, but Reagan is that he is an actor. So he is obviously good on TV. He knows how to deliver the lines. He looks the part, um, even though as an actor, you know, he wasn't necessarily in these things that presented him as seriously as he presented himself as president. Um, but then once he once he takes over, that's when all of this deregulation stuff happens. So talk a little bit about that, because I think we're still kind of fighting the battles now about stuff that ha- happened in the 80s under Reagan. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so 1984 is a really landmark year for cable deregulation with the, the legislation that we already talked about that was passed that fall. Um, but honestly, most of the deregulatory measures had been already introduced. The the bipart There's a bipartisan embrace of deregulating the media landscape by the late 1970s. Um, in fact, Jimmy Carter is more influential in, in paving the way for this. I, I mean, again, they actually start with Nixon, uh, and then they really gain ground um, under Jimmy Carter. And so you start to really see the flourishing of it under Ronald Reagan, but all of the groundwork is really paved in the 1970s. And I think, again, that's something I didn't think about before researching this project, about how much of a bipartisan embrace of deregulation there is. That you've got you know, a Democrat, a new Democrat, a younger Democrat that comes in on the heels of Watergate, uh, Tim Worth, who is representing cable companies in, um, in Denver, and he is at the forefront of this legislation um, and, um, in the 1980s. So Ronald Reagan does, he, he loves the cable industry. Uh, he sees them as uh, in the flourishing of cable in the 1980s, he sees as evidence of the merits of the marketplace. And, and so uh, he really does have a, gr a great relationship um, with cable operators. He talks to them at their, he goes on C-SPAN and talks to them at their convention in 82. He actually goes, uh, calls into C-SPAN regularly. He, he's a very, he's a fan of C-SPAN. Uh, and so he's really, he, he does really like the industry, but what's really, and I found this fascinating, there is this plan that is presented to his team in 1984 uh, for his reelection about making cable a priority for how he communicated in 84. And they wanted to develop this presidential cable channel uh, that's dedicated just to, you know, his reelection. And his team ultimately says no. And it's a little costly, um, and it's and they they think it's too untested that maybe this would be something that could come in the future, which obviously it does. Uh, <laughs> but but I, what I noticed is that they he he still is invest. He was a product of broadcasting. Reagan thought about mass audiences. He wanted to appeal to mass audiences. He wanted to make conservatism popular, and so it's not just that he's a product of broadcasting, but he sees it as a tool to serve his political goals. He doesn't want to slice and dice the electorate. He wants to get ever. He wants to be popular, and he wants to um, get people behind him. And so broadcasting really serves his 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 political communication needs, even though cable is an example of his economic agenda flourishing yeah yeah that's interesting and it were and it worked by the way i mean he was he <laughs> was among other things very popular so what was the in the bipartisan push what was the what was carter's motivation to deregulate was it just hey we have a monopoly these three networks this sucks let's try to you know break it apart like the mob you know ma bell kind of thing <laughs> like yeah, in that yeah. frame antitrust stuff yeah, so he's absolutely about breaking up these monopolies um, from the telephone uh, um, companies to, to to broadcasters as well. He really buys into the notion of efficiency. And, and this is, again, a change that you start to see in the, the 1970s, where he's having a lot of economists 
that are shaping policy discussions. Um, this also happens under Gerald Ford as well, but really under under Carter, that they're thinking about what is efficient, what's what's going to make a more efficient um, television marketplace, and so really buys into this notion of market competition as delivering efficiency. And and it's interesting because there are people that warn him that especially with cable television, if you just rely on a market driven approach, it might undermine other goals of the administration, like advancing minority media ownership and um, and notions of equity. And that's exactly what it does. The emphasis on efficiency ultimately undermines uh, other uh, efforts to really advance equity. Yeah. Well, that makes, I mean, that makes sense that he would push in that way. And, you know, some of these visionaries saw, they definitely saw where everything was going, Mm -hmm. you know, for sure. So you mentioned Roger Ailes, you know, Ailes the country, um, Ailes the discourse. He and Lee Atwater are working on the the H.W. Bush campaign. That's a, you know, two devils really in in Congress there operating small C Congress, like, you know, working together to undermine all that is right and good. Um, And they come up with this Willie Willie Horton ad um, and which is also, at least in my mind, one of the, the signature moments of this whole, you know, media and politics kind of thing. So talk a little bit about that. Just remind everybody what that ad is, what it what it did. And uh, okay. and then tell us a little bit about these two upstanding gentlemen and their relationship going forward to Fox and everything mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, so it's um, it, it capitalizes um, on Michael Dukakis's role as governor. Uh, there was a program um, about you know letting uh, p- people in prison out on weekend releases, um, and, and this is actually a program that was begun by Dukakis's predecessor. Um, but then under Dukakis, there's an example of someone who um, uh, during his weekend was let out um, and broke into a couple's house um, and. Um, I believe he he assaulted the man and raped his wife. This is not, again, something, this is not a program that uh, Dukakis started, but it became a way to really tap into racial fears. Yeah. And so it's uh, in the summer of 1988 and the Reader's Digest pulls up the story and really starts to kind of fan the flames of this story. Then all of a sudden, um, Bush talks about it, uh, you know, um, and Atwater and Ailes are saying, oh, this is a story. This is a way that we can really try to induce racialized fear, um, tap into kind of those um, white supremacist voters uh, through uh, by stoking this this racial fear. And, and it starts to work really well on the campaign trail. Um, this story, all of a sudden, they, they just latch on to this story. The, name, the man's name was William Horton. But quickly, he became known as Willie um, uh, as a way, again, to kind of and, and the, the, the story then, um, you know, really kind of expands and starts to take on um, a new. I think, you know, there are times that Bush really fabricated certain things uh, to yeah. intensify and make people scared. The, there's another person that's missing from this equation of Atwater and Ailes, and that's T- Tony Fabrizio who is a Republican consultant, uh, a Republican pollster, who works for the National Security Action uh, Political or National Security Political Action Committee. And they have $1 million to spend to get involved in that election. And they ask him, how can we get the most bang for our buck with this $1 million? And so he creates um, this very infamous um, Willie Horton ad uh, that has the mugshot um, of Horton um, and really kind 
of talks about, you know, this is Dukakis on crime. Um, and so the racial politics, you know, playing into some of these racial fears, it's at the, it's at the forefront. This is run, um, he decides he's going to run it on cable networks, things like the Nashville network, daytime, uh, um, the daytime uh, channel where it's women. Uh, And so he's targeting Southern white conservatives and women uh, trying to get a very specific reaction. It's incredibly controversial because it's incredibly racist. And um, and so all of a sudden people are talking about this ad. The ad then is becoming fodder for broadcast news conversations. And so this ad comes on broadcast, not as an actual advertisement, but as a story. And so the ad blows up and the controversy around the ad blows up. And Tony Fabrizio is just delighted uh, because he sees this as incredibly effective. That's how he got the most bang for his buck. And and so, you know, George um, H.W. Bush says that that was a political action committee. That wasn't my campaign. Mm. You know, we're not we're not playing um, these dirty games with racism, Uh, but he's certainly capitalized on all the voters that came to him and ran ads that were very similar. They didn't have the mugshot, but it really tapped into the exact same ideas. Uh, and so again, there's a lot of links uh, between the, the PAC and the, the Bush campaign. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember that. You mentioned Reader's Digest. I didn't know that piece. That's, I don't know, Lynn Cheney, Dick Cheney's wife was heavily involved with Reader's Digest. I don't know if she was at that time, but that's you know, there is yeah, some it's, overlap it's a conservative, there. You know, um, yeah. it's a conservative project. And, and I think it's, you know, we talked about kind of these conservative inst- media institutions that formed in the 1950s and 1960s, and they persist. Um, yeah. And and they they really tap into the ideas with, of one another. Yeah. Now, you talk in the book about about the MTV presidency and Bill Clinton, you know, and ask, you know, they ask him about his under what underwear he wears and stuff like that. I remember I was around for that, you know, and, and, and that was silly. But I want to talk now a little bit more about Fox News, because I think that's really the problem that we're that we're facing as a society. To your point of how these these conservative networks sort of help each other, you know, Rush Limbaugh, who was already kind of on the airwaves and popular at that time. Um, and still a lot of people listening to this daytime radio, like lots of just on the background, on when people are driving, you know, whatever. He's pushing this a lot and drives the viewership and his listenership to go turn Fox News on. And sort of he's pretty um, important in how this thing got raised up. So talk a little bit about the birth of Fox News. This is in 96, I think. Right. Which is later than I thought. I, I I don't know. For some reason, I thought it was roughly equivalent to CNN, but CNN is much earlier than that. So. Yeah, CNN is comes on the scene in 1980, and then it's not until 1996 that you have MSNBC and Fox News, um, and they are they're linked uh, because MSNBC launches, um, and um, it launches out of an effort to to kind of bring in some competition uh, to uh, to CNN. Our NBC is partnering with Microsoft, um, and that's where you kind of get that partnership. But because of cable policy at that time, um, NBC, uh, there's a, this this regulatory condition called retransmission consent, and it really requires cable operators to pay broadcasters for their programming. Um, and cable operators didn't want to do that. They didn't want to fork over cash. So they, they would give them a spot on the cable dial. Um, at this, We think of 500 channels, right? And that they're there's an unlimited number of uh, spots on the cable dial today. Well, that actually wasn't the case in 1996. They maybe had 
50 or 60, but it was still crowded. And so um, NBC had this spot because of a regulatory policy. They then partner with Microsoft Word that they're going to, or Microsoft, not Microsoft Word, just Microsoft, the, the, um, the company. And they launched the, what is going to be an interactive 24-7 um, news channel that's going to be designed for the younger generation. Notably, Roger Ailes was not at the head of that. He, at the time he ran um, America's Talking and he kind of ran kind of the, the early foray of um, NBC into cable news. He thought he would be involved in this project. He conflicted a lot with NBC leadership. He was excluded and he was angry. And so then he starts to um, think about what he can do. He partners with Rupert, Rupert Murdoch. They want to do a competitor to MSNBC and really tap into, um, you know, conservative audiences. He's conservative. Um, he'd been dreaming about this project for decades, um, and he finds um, a, a partner with Rupert Murdoch, who wants to, who again has both broadcasting and cable um, uh, networks, but he really wants the prestige he thinks will come with a news um, organization. And so they launch uh, Fox News um, in 1996, and they do so really thinking, really studying the business model of Rush Limbaugh. And you know, Rush Limbaugh had showed that part partisan talk radio that was entertaining, but also conservative. Uh, but again, it was entertainment first and, and like it then advancing a conservative ideology second, that this could be a, a really successful business model. And that's what they, they adopt at Fox News. It's very much following the success of Rush Limbaugh. And, and I would just kind of note that there were earlier efforts to create um, conservative networks that failed because they were not entertaining enough. And yeah. so the idea was we have to engage our viewers, keep our viewers, and then kind of advance these conservative messages. Conservative network news wasn't entertaining enough? No way. <laughs> It's I called National believe. Empowerment Television, uh, is what uh, was launched in 93 to, and did not succeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, um, <laughs> I'll just let that one go. So I, <laughs> I guess now I want to I want to ask you a few questions about what's happening like right now and your take on, on things right now, because Fox News, you know, it looks like it's in a place of where it has to change its tactics at least a little bit, because you have a couple of things. First of all, they seem finally to have repudiated Trump, you know, way too late, but it seems like that's finally happened where they've turned their back on him. You have the Dominion case, which is going to eventually cripple them because they're knowingly maliciously lying about, you know, really important national security stuff on air. Um, and then you have Rupert Murdoch is now 92 and he is he's stepping down and handing over control of Fox News to his son, Lachlan, who's you know, besties with Tucker Carlson and all this kind of stuff. Um, and then you also have economic factors because a lot of the advertisers left, you know, they left because they're, these people are, you know, white supremacist liars and, uh, you know, advertisers don't want to be associated with Tucker and some of these other things. Um, but they still make money from the cable dial and the subscription fees and this other stuff. So what's going on there now? Where do you think it's headed? I don't know what's going on there. I think right now, honestly, is um, it's a really it's a turning point of where they pivot. It's a turning point for the broader cable news industry in terms of what are they delivering? And when they can't just rely on subscription fees uh, because people are starting to cut the cord, right? So they're, the subscription fees are, are declining. So now they have to rely on 
different business models. So they have to rely on advertisements or they have to rely, rely on streaming subscription services, right? So the question is, what product are they going to deliver uh, that will get people to re-engage with the information? Um, and and I don't know. Um, I don't know kind of wh where it's going to go. I do think that the fact that we're going into a presidential election year is a really significant moment uh, that cable for the last, you know, really since the 1990s, uh, kind of where I ended my book, uh, cable news has and cable the cable um, networks more broadly have played a really important role in campaigns. And so, you know, politicians have taken them seriously and have decided to do debates on, mm -hmm. on cable, right? They've decided to, to buy advertisements on cable. They've decided to sit down and do interviews, town halls, to make cable a priority for how they communicate. And so will that happen in 2024? What kind of coverage uh, will you get? Will they learn from 2020? Um, all of those are questions that remain to be seen. But I do think this presidential election year and whether or not cable journalists um, and newsrooms kind of step up and deliver something to voters. That's a, that's a question of whether or not they, they want to, whether or not they can, whether or not voters will trust that, or will they kind of keep pandering to different campaigns to try to, you know, gain influence with those campaigns and elected officials and how, how that will play out. I don't know, but I think those are all the questions that are at play right now. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's a, you know, it's definitely an inflection point and how you know, how all these media outlets report on all the stuff that's happening where, you know, we really are, as I've mentioned many times on this show, on the precipice of, you know, some sort of autocratic fascist uh, takeover. If the Republic, if Trump wins again, I think it's game over for a lot of things. You know, one of the issues with, the, the, I guess there's a balance between, um, you know, how much the news and, and the outlets can be fractured. I mean, one of the virtues of having just three networks is that there is a lot more gatekeeping and a lot more, I think, um, because of the regulations and everything else, less temptation to lie, you know, just to, to outright lie to generate ratings. You're going to watch if there's only three channels, you're going to watch the newscaster whose voice you like the most or whatever. And that's what you're going to do. And that person is not going to be, you know, whatever Jesse Waters or Tucker Carlson is doing. They're going to be kind of, you know, in the, towing the line in the middle broadcasting as in, yeah. in you know in the yeah, and, and and that's that's the challenge right is that yeah. you have this gatekeeping and if you think about network television you had a shared experience a shared set of facts that people were consuming the problem though is that it was not all of the facts right there's yeah. so many different perspectives that were excluded um and, and so it's in, in and there's a reliance on just official sources and you know and really an adherence to those who are in power so Again, it's 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 a tricky tricky situation. You you de decentralize the media. You you allow for the diversity of new voices that can you know advance social change and, uh, and racial justice, all of these things. But then you also open up these other voices that can come to play that are you know manipulating and advancing lies. And so mm -hmm. you have all of these different perspectives. And I think that's the central challenge: is how do you have a shared conversation about, I mean, the fact that you can have all of these competing realities um, is just really um, is, is, a, is a challenge for a democracy moving forward. Yeah. I'm writing down what you just said, competing realities. That's good. 
That's the title for your next book, I think. Right there. Uh, <laughs> you know, it might be. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Um, no, it's very good. Um, because, and you're right, you know, and that's the thing we have to avoid. Like we have, there has to be enough stations that, or, you know, people, there's enough groups that are getting the word out, but not so many that it's just all bread and circus and lies, you know, which is what's mm -hmm. happening now. There's just, you know, there's too much bullshit and not enough, uh, you know, real news that, that Fox News often just, as you mentioned earlier, they just don't report on stuff that's happening because they choose not to. Um, mm -hmm. Nobody that's watching Fox has any idea about the Dominion case because they've never mentioned it, you know, stuff like that. There's just things that maybe we should know about that they don't talk about, but, you know. They will tell you about how old Joe Biden is and how many Secret Service agents Commander the dog has bitten, because this is mm -hmm. the important stuff that's going on and that every American needs to know. Um, and I don't know, like, you know, how do we penetrate the bubble? You know, how do we penetrate these these silos when something big happens, when there is a pandemic and it's important that, uh, you know, the, the official word on things be believed and, you know, disseminated um mm -hmm. th this week we're recording this on the 7th this week they launched on my phone and your phone i'm sure also went off at 2 30 whatever day that was a couple of days ago um everybody's phone bleeped at the same time because it was a a, a you know this is a test of the emergency broadcast system and ever people are freaking out on Twitter who are crazy thinking that this is going to activate the 5G signal is going to activate the Marburg virus in our brains that were put there by the vaccines and we're all going to turn into zombies. This is people really believe this shit. And it's like, all this is, is the cell phone version of this is a test of the emergency broadcast mm -hmm. system, which was on TV all throughout, you know, my childhood and probably, you know, years and years before that. So um, can anything puncture the bubble? I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. Um, honestly, <laughs> we end on an impossible question. Yeah, it, it really is. And, <laughs> and, you know, what, as a historian, uh, my my goal with this book, and in my classrooms, when I, you know, talk with you, um, when any public writing, is just to bring more media literacy. Um, I, you know, to me, the solution is not to go back to the fairness doctrine, right? Or to go back to these uh, uh, regulations that were incredibly problematic. But I think it's to invest in education. Um, of course, I'm an educator, but to invest in the humanities, to help people to think critically, right? To, to be able to understand that this source has a particular bias and to be able to look at that, to know how to consume media. And these are critical thinking skills that I think that th we need to make sure that we are supporting and funding um, and encouraging in our schools. And I think that to me is the, the, the way forward to make sure that people understand how it works. If you understand that this media environment is designed to distract and divide people that helps you think about the information in a new way. Um, you're not just taking it at its word, you're thinking critically through it. Um, and, and I think that to, to me is the most important thing moving forward. Um, I like that answer. I thought I thought I was going to uh, trip you up, but I did not at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one one way that people can educate themselves is to read your book, which is, as I said, I, I read it. It's great. Um, it's called 24-7 Politics. Cable television and the fragmenting of America from Watergate 
to Fox News. Um, where can we find you? Are you still on the health site of Twitter or where are you? I, <laughs> I am. Um, so yes, my Twitter handle is at Catherine.Brownell. Um, I have a faculty webpage at Purdue. You can uh, just look at it in the history department. And I'm also an editor of a new column that just launched uh, with Time Magazine called Made by History. And so if you ever want more about history and how it shaped the headlines today, uh, we publish four to five articles each week. Um, and so definitely check out that work as well. Okay. What's it called? It's called Made by History. Made by History. And it's with Time Magazine. Okay. I'm going to check that out. Um, this is great. Um, Catherine Brownell, thanks for taking the time with me today. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for the conversation. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossett. Serena Zabriskie, Marie Cast, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, Kimberly Johnson, and everyone else at MSW Media. If you'd like to support this program, get three friends to subscribe. The more downloads I get, the better the show does. You can also subscribe to The 5-8, the live YouTube show I do with my friend Stephanie Koff, a.k.a. LB. Tune in tonight for your Friday night hang. Most importantly, please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $6 monthly or $55 yearly subscription funds my work on the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Be kind to each other. Try and enjoy yourself. And until next time, we shall prevail. M-S-W-Media.